0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. And today, this is your host, David Kunzman. And today, we have Maxwell Kennel to talk about his 2022 book entitled Post-Secular History, Political Theology and the Politics of Time, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Maxwell, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: So we usually like to ask our guests, uh, how did they uh, begin? Uh with their work and just their general background.
0: Great, well, I'll start with a bit of an introduction. I'm, I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. And I'm working on a book project there on conspiratorial thinking, religion, and critique. And at the same time, I'm, I'm also a part-time research associate in the Center for Social Accountability at the uh, Northern Ontario School of Medicine up here in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And this is an institution that's just become a, a university. So in the context of the medical school, I'm working on an interdisciplinary team that's attempting to make medical education and healthcare more accountable to the societies and communities that it serves. And this intersects with my academic work in some, some interesting ways we might be able to talk about. But broadly speaking, I'm, a, I'm trained as a scholar of religion Uh, But my work is very interdisciplinary, so I've studied continental philosophy and Christian theology and social history and critical theory in different contexts. But overall, my focus is on social critique and the the meaning of key terms like violence, conspiracy, secularity and religion, and then their effects on public life and and public health. But uh, I'll, I'll say a bit about how I came to write the book. Um, I I wrote post-secular history during my PhD studies in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University, and I developed the book kind of concurrently with my dissertation, which was on ontologies of violence. So where my dissertation is very unified and linear in its attempt to kind of reconstruct the concept of violence, Uh, post-secular history collects several Previously published and new essays, kind of under one banner, and that uh, the, the theme of the book is the critical analysis of how theological and political influences kind of bear upon the periodization of time and history, especially in the, that term post secular. So maybe maybe I'll say a bit to put the the book in context. Um, I think it, it's helpful to think of it as as the first installment in a trilogy, and it sets the stage for my revised dissertation uh, and my postdoctoral book uh, in, in some interesting ways. So in Ontologies of Violence, I'm presenting the concept of violence as a, as a name for the violation of value-laden boundaries. And to do that, I interpret the work of French philosopher Jacques Derrida and the pacifist epistemologies of the Mennonite tradition, as well as this, this unique trilogy called Death and the Displacement of Beauty by Grace Jansen. A feminist philosopher of religion. So that's, that's my dissertation. And so, in a way, post secular history sets the stage for my dissertation work on violence because it, it critically examines the periodizing strategies that are often used to justify violence. And then, now in, in my current postdoctoral book project, I'm, I'm working on a critique of conspiratorial reason uh, that first shows how conspiratorial thinking owes a debt to religion and then tries to hold it to account for both its its violent epistemology and its instrumental way of periodizing time in history. So post-secular history kind of provides a critical paradigm that I'm continuing to use in my work on violence and on, on conspiracism. So I'm excited to talk more about it with you.
1: So I guess to introduce uh, so a couple terms for our guests, the post-secular and political theology, uh, those could be new terms for... I guess, people coming into the uh, subject. So could you please define political theology and then post-secular?
0: Yeah, absolutely, David. I, I think these are these are very specialized and jargon-laden terms, and so some clarity with them would definitely help with the, the reading of the book and the discussion of the topic. So I'd, I'll start with political theology because I think for many scholars, political theology is, is only a sub-discipline of Christian theology where, you know, particular political terms are used for theological purposes. So we could imagine a theologian um, with a particular confessional aim using the paradigm of political theology to show how you know good theology ought to be more political or how theology is already political. But there are other ways of thinking about political theology that transcend confessions or disciplines. And I tend to follow those thinkers who, who see the insights of political theology in maybe broader or more interdisciplinary terms. So I think that the basic proposition of political theology is that there are ways of thinking and concepts and practices that we think are, are secular uh, or without religious influence, but which have very religious histories and histories that recur in the present, often in hidden ways. Mm. But I think that a challenge for political theology is to name and explore these connections without being patronizing or, or implying, you know, that the scholar knows better than those who they study. So, for example, by simplistically asserting that, you know, what, what you think is secular is really religious. I think it's better, better than that, better to understand the complex entanglements of religious and secular ideas without kind of claiming victory for one or framing them in competitive terms. So in in general, I think that political theology as a sub-discipline within religion and and theology provides a real opportunity to kind of avoid two problems. The one problem is thinking that, you know, religion doesn't matter in public life. It doesn't doesn't have a role. And then the opposite problem is is that, you know, it can be so caught up in religious ways of thinking that one couldn't see how, how many parts of our, our world have moved decisively away from religion. So political theology provides this real way through these two problems by at once acknowledging the, the deep influence of religion while also having enough distance from it that it can be truly critical. So in a way, political theology is, is a way to kind of be both post-secular and post-religious, which depends entirely upon how that prefix post is defined. And then there's the, the term post-secular, which is in the, the title of the book. And I think that the first, the term secular is very hard to define. So for some theologians, the secular only refers to a, a lack or an absence of religious thinking. But to me, that's a, that's a very reactive and reductive definition. It doesn't adequately defer to those who call themselves secular. Instead, it, it kind of imposes... A definition upon secular forms of life from outside. So for me, I mean, secularity refers to a kind of a world-oriented form of life that doesn't rely upon or or take refuge in transcendental or otherworldly discourses. Secularity as a term refers to a particular way I think of situating oneself in time, and it's its ancient Latin root, uh, "seculum." It refers to lengths of time that that human beings can kind of measure and live within. And this is also why I think the, the term post-secular or after the secular, why this word needs more critical analysis than it's received, especially because the prefix post is also a temporal and historical marker, meaning after. So part of my argument in the book is that both parts of the word postsecular are periodizing terms. The prefix post and the term secular both take this, this kind of mystery of time and divide it into past, present, and future, or ancient, medieval, and modern. And not only do, do these terms divide; not only does the word postsecular divide time, but it also apportions meaning and value by by economizing time. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But before we do, I, I should say something about the kind of the definitions of the postsecular that I'm responding to in the book, or the uses of the term that I'm I'm pushing against. And that's when we place the prefix post before a term, I think we're often pointing forward and trying to secure something so we can say, Oh, now we're after that. So I can think about like post COVID or post Trump as terms that are being thrown around right now. Um, Or, or for many Christian theologians, this term post secular kind of claims that we're, we're now decisively in a period after secularity. Um, And, the term postsecular gets used to to try to re-justify Christianity after it's been challenged by certain principles in the Enlightenment and modernity. But I, I worry that many theologians use the term post-secular to avoid responding to serious challenges and criticisms that are posed by secular critics. So I, I fundamentally disagree with uses of the term post-secular that would try to fix secularity in place and then try to move beyond it. Like as if one could get past the past or use a dismissive gesture to um, to narrate a victory of, of religion over secularity. So I think there are many ways we're using this prefix post that are not helpful. I tend to use the term you know, as a tool to forget or ignore the past or as a means to place something in the past that's not really past at all. Um, so in short, I, I think I'm fundamentally suspicious of any use of the term post-secular that places secularity in the past and says we're over that, especially because the word gets used in such diverse ways. And that's why I argue that you know, if we're going to use this word in, in the, the kind of sub-discourse that I'm in, we should use it to name complex entanglements of religion and secularity. So overall, the book is trying to show that our distinction between religious and secular ways of thinking and knowing is, is far more complex and entangled than it first appears. So I point to how terms like, you know, past, present, and future, or ancient, medieval, and modern, how are how these words are laden with power. We don't simply discover the past or the present or the future; they don't simply exist. They're they're made and created and formed rather than being given or or capturable and neutral terms. So each each chapter in, in the book is very different because I'm, I'm using diverse sources and methodologies and interpretive frameworks to open up this word post-secular, but each chapter does respond to the kind of possessive or instrumentalizing or progressivist ways the term gets used. So uses of the prefix post, I don't think should proceed as if they can secure what the term precedes or use it for predecided purposes, or assert that we can move beyond what we try to put in the past. So it's better to say that even though we do move past things, things that we want to be past can never be made fully past, because our histories are present to us in the present. And all of this hinges on how, you know, theological and political ways of thinking influence our periodization and economization of time.
1: And you would also contend that uh, with the term secular, there's an implicit post in that term by right? post-religious, as in the secular con- claim that they overcame the religious, and even even they are uh, have these entanglements with the past.
0: That's a good question, David. I, I think that part of what I'm responding to is the notion that the secular overcame religion. In modernity and and in the Enlightenment, um, and I look at that in in some of the early chapters of the book, and I'm also responding to this normative push <clears throat> wherein, you know, scholars want uh, or theologians want uh, Christianity to re overcome the secular, and so the, the kind of basic value or normative underpinning of of the work is that that those relationships of competitiveness or antagonism or enmity are. Are not useful or helpful in our, our discourse on, on time and history.
1: Another term that you use in the first half of the book is economy and economization. Uh, how, do, how do those terms play out in the realm of political theology?
0: So re- recent political theology has taken a kind of a turn toward economic thinking and that means it's turned toward problems of political economy, but not not in the reductive sense of the word economy, where it would just mean kind of money or finance, but in the sense of its, it's Greek root, oikonomia, which refers to the, the management of the household, the apportioning of, of uh, meaning and value in labor. So the, there's a kind of a claim in this vein of political theology that the means by which we apportion meaning and value by, you know, economizing our time or, or valuing some things and not others, these sort of gestures of management are both political and theological. And there I'm working with uh, uh, thinkers like Marie-José Monzane or Giorgio Agamben, Nicholas Heron, and Adam Kotzko. And so for a thinker like Monzane, it's, it's images that economize meaning by, by concealing and revealing or mediating between the mysterious character of images and their revelation. And then for Agamben or Heron, it's, uh, this economization happens when we glorify things or acclaim or use you know ways that Christian liturgies have become secularized and yet retained their theological structure.
1: So I guess going on to the later part of the book, you have a chapter on um, the post-secular history and, and the 17th century Dutch radicals, the Dutch Enlightenment. Could you state how you problematize, I guess, previous scholars' views on that uh, time?
0: Yeah, so there's a chapter in the book that draws from my master's thesis, and it's on the the Dutch uh, collegiate groups of the seventeenth century, and these were very, very pluralistic groups for the for the time period, and they gathered in the major centers of the Dutch Republic, and so there are some some historians. Who would read these groups as having a secularizing tendency over the course of their history? So I'm thinking of Andrew Fix and, in some ways, László Kolakowski. Uh, those are the two two uh, thinkers who've or historians who've created book length uh, studies of the the groups, uh, the collegiate groups, and both of them kind of see the, the the groups as beginning with a sort of 16th century Reformation spiritualism and then ending with enlightenment rationalism. And so part of my master's work was, was looking a little more closely at these groups and trying to, trying to call into question any, any linear interpretation of that, because they had a very interesting middle period um, where they were both spiritual and rational, where they were mixing um, sort of Christian and religious ideas from the, the previous century with newfound philosophies coming out of France, like Descartes and Spinoza, uh, Spinoza actually attended some of these groups and so that's the kind of problematization I want to make um, for the those 17th century groups but I also think it has a, an interesting bearing on our present uh, those those groups are uh, interesting precursors and interesting ways of looking back and seeing that oh you know this distinction between religion and the secular we have now not only does it not hold in the present, it also can distort our vision of the past. So if you, if you, you were to uh, interpret or, or read or study the collegiate groups uh, in the 17th century with a hard distinction between religion and the secular, there was a series of things you would miss, a series of interesting entanglements. So that, in, its place in the book is, is basically to say that you know the, the entanglement of religion and secularity uh, we need to to see these things as entanglement, not as entangled not only in the present but also uh, in the past.
1: Another interesting uh, thing I found in chapter five: the the titles uh, "Periodization and Providence" between Nietzsche and Augustine, uh, two very different figures on the surface. But could you explain how you, I guess, in a deeper way, bring these two figures together? In their works, confessions, and uh, those folks, Arthur Stroh.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, so I have this this kind of underlying theme in the book: the critique of theological and political forms of periodizing time. Uh, and I use it in the later chapters to interpret and, and and to read different literary philosophical texts. So I don't want to say too much about my my reading of Nietzsche and Augustine, because I think it's a maybe an intriguing. Reason for for people to read the book, but in short, I I read these two texts, the Augustine's Confessions and Nietzsche's Zarathustra. <clears throat> I read them as a as parallel journeys that both feature a messianic personality who you know narrates their life story through ascending and descending images while configuring time and history in unique ways. So Augustine develops his theory that there's no there's no past or future, but only a past that is present in the present, and only a future that's present in the present. And he develops that. And Nietzsche also has a, an image for time. And that's a, as a gateway with two eternal paths that lead outward toward the past and an, and an eternity that leads toward the future. So in their in their narratives, but also in their more philosophical sections, these books are um, they're mediating between periodizing terms like past, present, and future. And they're doing so in ways that I think deserve comparative reading. They they converge in places. But they also diverge. So my reason for um, reading these two texts together comes from the book's perspective on religion and secularity. So I wonder what happens if we if we don't make that distinction between religion and secularity, uh, kind of a weight bearing part of our interpretation of texts. I think we we stand to benefit from moving apart from an essential division between these two categories because then we can set aside this reductive idea, for example, that you know Augustine's Christian identity and Nietzsche's anti-Christian character are so opposed that no comparative reading would be possible. I, I think instead, when we disinvest in this distinction between religion and secularity, we can interpret texts and the world in much deeper ways. And I should also say for this chapter, uh, I should thank my doctoral supervisor, Travis Craker, who ran a a seminar on this topic in the first term of my PhD back in fall 2016 and this seminar just you know changed my perspective on the study of religion in so many ways and it taught me how to attend to texts and contexts and cross-disciplinary boundaries in in creative ways by reading thinkers like these uh, together thinkers who who initially seem quite distant
1: so in the, in the uh, in the next chapter you talk about the technology of time that's usually a term that you know, te- technology is usually thought of as something that's, you know, manufactured with materials, not something um, abstract like time. Uh, could you please, I guess, define what you mean by are you using a broader uh, definition of technology, and how does that relate to, to time?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's 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 a key. That's a key entryway into my argument in that chapter. So I, um, I just had an article come out on this in the Conrad Grable Review called uh, Violent Inclinations, where I, I would summarize it in kind of closer terms. But I follow thinkers who who would be in part of the post-humanities, post-human turn, um, like David Wills or uh, Bernard Stiegler. And they they have a much more expansive definition of technology than I think we're used to in, in in more more public and popular conversations and their their argument is that you know when we fundamentally separate technological tools from from human bodies or human values then again we lose uh, we lose sight of some things it's a reductive way of thinking so in that chapter I, I think of technology with these post human thinkers as a as a form of craft or making. And it, it meshes into my argument about the periodization of time as something where we're not only dividing up time and history, but we're ascribing value and meaning to it in ways that are, are making it and not just revealing what's already been given. So technology, uh, reading time and our economizing and managing of it as a form of technological making that's the basic uh, premise of the chapter is that, you know, when we're looking at clocks or calendars, those are technological tools that we're using to manage something that's quite unmanageable.
1: So um, I guess my next question is what are the further implications of your, your analysis and your, I guess, your uh, intervention in the post secular how does this play out or say anything about our current political situation or time
0: that's a that's a great question
1: so i'm interested
0: in unpacking how temporal and historical terms are used to make our ideas seem more legitimate so if if you want to convince someone of something you might maybe you might point back to a golden age like back in time to, to a time when things were better and say, we ought to return there. Or you might point forward to the end of time by appealing to some dystopian apocalypse or a utopian society. But regardless, I think it's what's very persuasive in our time and in many times is this manipulation of temporal terms like past, present, and future and, and the mediation between them. So if I make a distinctive contribution in the book, it's that I'm trying to say that periodization is not just the division of time, but also the valuation of it, and that this valuation is not simple or linear or hierarchical, but it's it's a kind of mediation where temporal power is distributed in hidden ways. So rather than seeing, you know, a central part of my argument is that rather than seeing the prefix post as something that, you know, successfully puts us after, against, or beyond what it precedes. Uh, I think the post-secular, as a word, is, a, is an opportunity to think past some rigid dualisms and to see through uh, some of the ways that we're persuaded in, in the public sphere. So, for example, I mentioned uh, post-COVID uh, reality. We're seeing that in news headlines. And, and there are so many ways in which we're not meaningfully post-pandemic. Uh, and so, too, with the Trump presidency, we're not post-Trump. We're, we're now living in the aftermath of that in, in um, North America. And so that's, that's one way that it, I would say my argument bears upon our political situation is that it, it uh, maybe I'm serving as a reminder to, uh, to not lose track of even recent past events. There's so much uh, that, that kind of floods our, our, our social media channels and our news channels that uh, it's easy to lose track of things and to, uh, to forget how soon, uh, how, how, how recently so many of these world-changing events have unfolded. So that's that's one I think political consequence.
1: So you mentioned this work being part of a trilogy. Um, any insight about what the further volumes could be? Obviously, they're probably going to build off
0: this work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the second second part of it, and I, I mean, they'll be released with different publishers in a in a order that I can't predict, but. My, my next step is to revise my dissertation on violence. And to, um, I, I think a main connection there is that when I'm looking at violence as the as a concept, it's something that implies the violation of, of value-laden boundaries. So we have boundaries around things that are, are um, important to us. And we use the word violence to name when those lines have been crossed. Um, and so I noticed in my dissertation research that A lot of uh, you know thinkers who would defend the use of coercion or force or persuasion, you know, violent, uh, violent forms of of persuasion. That they would often refer to particular stories, you know, meta narratives about the world, wherein you know there was some original creation that was you know perfect and pure, after which you know humanity fell. Uh, that stories like that got used to justify violence later because we're you know we're in some kind of um, fallen period. And so I'm interested in making a connection with with the uh, with my as I'm revising my dissertation and trying to think about how justifications of violence are entangled with certain periodizations of time. And then the third book in the trilogy will be my postdoctoral book which is called Critique of Conspiracism and there I'm I'm trying to uh, provide a critical approach to conspiracy theories uh, and their their influence on public life. And so half of that book will be uh, concerned with how conspiratorial thinking does lead to certain forms of violence and also represents a violent way of thinking in that it violates um, certain aspects of our, our kind of our human condition. Uh, but I'm also interested in in that third volume in the conspiracy book on, you know, I'm interested in how conspiracy theories uh, divide up and apportion meaning and value to, to certain periods of time. So a lot of conspiracy theories will point back in time to, uh, uh, to precedents, to, to previous events that are then gathered and recollected in the present and made to serve certain, you know, predecided decided uh, ends. So I, I see the work in post-secular history as a kind of a, uh, a paradigm that I'll take up and use in the next two books.
1: Thank you. Uh, I think that's all the time we have today for today, and uh, we'll just see you next time.